Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Today's guest historian is John Busher. He is the author of many books and articles on the history of American spiritualism. And that should be no surprise. He's the co-director of the International Association for the Preservation of Spiritualist and Occult Periodicals. It's an online database where John and his team have digitized thousands of pages of newspapers, pamphlets, books, and advertisements, which is a goldmine for historians and people like me. Researcher Carl Nellis talked with John about all kinds of spiritualists, some we covered in our season of Unobscured, like Cora Scott to John Conklin, and some we'll introduce to you here for the first time. So let's get to the interview. Here's Dr. John Busher. This is the Unobscured interview series for Season 2. I'm Aaron Mankey. Well, it meant to be attached to a movement that was sometimes firmly and sometimes loosely associated. Um, These were people who felt that they could make immediate contact with the souls of the departed. And uh, in order to do that, they typically would uh, sit around around a table and join hands and um, wait for things to happen. Lights were usually turned down fairly low. And um, one of them would be, would act as a medium, which means someone who could establish psychic contact with the spirits. Sometimes things would happen that were not just what you might think of as messages coming out of the medium's mouth from various spirits, but sometimes um, furniture would move or people would feel caressings or hear raps under the table and so on. And that was more or less the practical meaning of being a spiritualist. But it was a wide movement, and uh, you didn't necessarily have to actually attend what came to be called seances in order to identify yourself as a spiritualist. Spiritualists also developed a kind of constellation of beliefs about the afterlife and about this life. And so there were spiritualist conventions, there were... um, a bunch of people who traveled as platform lecturers who speculated on this new theology and new doctrine and new era that was opening up that would 
join up heaven to earth. In so that, that's what it was. In that variety of uh, kind of events that would be considered spiritualist, from the platform lecture to the uh, the test medium investigation to the seance, uh, when people were coming to these seances to meet with these mediums, what kinds of things were they looking for? What did they want to get out of it? Well, they they wanted to see wonder. Um, and one of the wonders that they saw or hoped to see was some immediate connection to their own relatives or friends in the afterlife. They were anxious about that. And if it could be proved that a connection was made, um, it would, of course, alleviate their own grieving over the departed souls of their friends and relatives. But it would also give them some conviction. They typically talked about how traditional religion was based on faith in the afterlife, but they were seeking knowledge or proof of it. So that wonder that they were seeking, I think, was just larger than asking Aunt Bertha where, where that will was of Uncle Carl's that nobody knows, get, we can't find it now. Where is it, under the dresser or something? Um, or how are you doing? Um, is it? Is it a good place that you've gone to in the afterlife? But there were larger questions about uh, anxieties to be answered, about the direction of the country, about the direction of, uh, about um, even about politics, uh, about the new world that would seem to be emerging all around them. Um, so these were the kind. Of, I mean, it was a very broad spectrum of, of things that were going on. There were many people who attended seances that called themselves investigators, you know, as if they were amateur or sometimes professional um, scientists who were looking for evidence and would regard these sessions as an opportunity to test whether or not fraud was going on or self-delusion or whatnot, uh, as well as firm believers that what they were seeing was in, was in fact true. So I think um, it's a hard question to answer, but there were a range of motivations from people who joined in seances mm. or even who attended platform lectures. Um, I think it's very typical to read an account of, uh, of a medium who would go up on stage and the audience would be mixed between firm believers and they would usually set themselves off towards the front in a kind of cordon, uh, maybe to protect the speaker, I don't know. But, and then behind them there'd be hecklers and people who you know, were sort of vaguely threatening. Uh, you know, might ask embarrassing questions or try to trick medium or something like that. Mm. In the course of researching the movement and studying its members, uh, 
you've you fastened on some figures like John Murray Spear and John Conklin and and Odelia Distabar, and you've written book-length treatments about them. Is there a common thread between the kinds of people that you have taken as your research subjects and decided to tell their their story in a kind of robust way? Well, there's two parts to that answer, Coral, I think. One is that um, I'm fascinated with writing people's biographies. Um, I don't know how to write history in an abstract way. Um, I usually, my eyes usually glaze over as I'm looking through history that depicts it as a playground of impersonal forces and working against each other and dropping out the individuals. I think all I can see about history is the stories of people that tell tales about other people. And that's what I've always been interested in. Uh, so that's one way to, to um, talk about why I'm incessantly writing biographies. I don't know how to do it any other way. <laughs> yeah. But um, the other issue is the people I've focused on, maybe as you've noticed, are uh, really wild characters. And um, I think I've always been... I don't know if you'd say gifted, but at least fascinated by outliers. Uh, these are the sort of wildest of the wild folks. And uh, I think I've always been able to, I don't know, walk along a beach or sand and find some odd thing that other people don't notice or some piece of glass that looks shiny. Uh, and these are definitely those, those kinds of people, you know, within the wide range of the spiritualist movement. I seem to be able to find, you know, the toad in the hole or the serpent in the garden, if you might say. And uh, I, th I think by looking at those outliers, you can see stuff that's true within the movement, but maybe harder to see stuff that's true in potential. And that leads you into, you know, questioning the main narrative about what spiritualism was and trying to follow its logic. They seem to be loose threads that you can pull and see the texture a little better. That's, that's fantastic. Maybe as we, as we, as we talk over the next hour or so, um, it would be awesome to hear you kind of reflect maybe because I want to talk about both John Conklin and uh, Cora Scott, who became Cora Hatch and Cora Richmond. And uh, maybe we'll be able to compare a little bit and talk about what the main narrative is and, and who the outliers are and kind of how they played against each other um, over a few decades of spiritualist history. Uh, I would love that if we could do that kind of going forward. Okay. Um, you're one of those people who has done a great service to academia with the with uh, IAPSOP in digitizing and working to collect digitized periodicals from spiritualist history uh, with with the team there can you talk about uh, what originally drew you to the to that work and uh, and what you've done with that organization yes I can tell you um, I put a few things on the web 
I don't know, 15, 18 years ago. Um, that struck me as important and fascinating um, about history of spiritualism. Mostly, you get to know spiritualism, I think, from the ground up as a historian. Um, and the ground was missing here. There was plenty of secondary material, but if you read secondary material, people who already have a take on it, and maybe were not as familiar as they could have been with this primary material, then you're not really getting down into where the history was being formed. And it was also my conviction that uh, all of the material I was looking for was present in the periodicals and newspapers that the spiritualists themselves were producing back in those days. You know, they would often give um, lists of platform mediums and where they were going and their lecture tours and so on. They would also give uh, criticisms of one another um, on this point or that point, uh, who was marrying who, who was dissing who, um, those kinds of things are not readily available, and they're only in these periodicals. So in order to get hold of these periodicals, I mean, these were efe this is ephemera, you know. And a lot of, uh, if you think about it, librarians who, and archivists who would be expected to um, collect and preserve such materials, they were inclined over the century and a half since these things were produced. Uh, they were quite inclined to deaccession these things at, um, at their first chance, either out of their own convictions or simply because they thought, oh, this is kind of crazy and I need the space here and let's throw away these 14 volumes of the Banner of Light or something. So in practice, what that meant was if you wanted to do primary research in that area, um, the collections were scattered all over the country, in fact, all over the world. You might have a volume collected here or in Washington in the Library of Congress, or there might be one um, at the New York Public Library. And so um, there was three or four of us who decided maybe where getting to be sort of retired gentlemen here or whatever, men of leisure or something like that. And uh, we're of the same conviction that we really couldn't rely on um, secondary material. So we set off sort of quixotic uh, project to collect all this stuff. And one of us in particular, Mark Demarest, was um, quite skilled in um, IT and decided that, yeah, we could collect all this and put it on a server. We could scan it. We could go dust off stuff, travel here and there on our own resources and use our time and talent to either photograph it, these things stuck in a corner somewhere here and there, um, or shell out some bucks to get 
libraries themselves to make microfilm uh, rolls that we could turn into OCR stuff and collate it all and put it on the web. And wouldn't that be a wonderful resource for everybody? Uh, so people wouldn't have to go trudging around and sort of work in the darkness. Mm. So that was the, that's the inspiration for it. And uh, yeah, it really has been such a service. Uh, I, you know, of course, I've been offended from it for this project, but just uh, as I've been sorting through the the more recent secondary material that's been written since those resources have been on the web, uh, I see I see the debt to you and and Mark and and the folks yeah. who've joined you uh, over and, and over. Devaney. Mm-hmm. The, yes, the yes. other guy who uh, has joined us was a retired lawyer from New York. He had spent probably 20, 25 years collecting microfilm rolls, sticking them in his study. He bought a microfilm reader and would <laughs> put a, you know, just for enjoyment instead of other people who might, you know, turn on a football game, he would go into his study and load one of these microfilm rolls on and read the um, spiritual telegraph from 1864 and just have a good old time. So he was a really primary resource for us at the beginning, especially at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, This kind of creates an interesting bridge back to what spiritualists were doing with publishing. Uh, How would you describe uh, what spiritualists were doing with various kinds of technology. I mean, there was lots of experimentation and interest in uh, both spreading news, but also figuring out how to communicate across new horizons. And I see almost some parallels between, I mean, what kind of what we're doing now with podcasting, but, uh, you know, where every kind of group has a podcast or a website or a blog or what you were doing with digitizing saying, we can put this out on the web. We can, um, can you talk a little bit about how spiritualists in the 19th century engaged technology and communication and uh, how that was really tied into the movement. Well, there's several things we could talk about there. One of them is uh, essentially the newspapers and periodicals themselves. There weren't that many spiritualists around the country, but um, they formed a definite group and had related interest and the newspapers weren't local newspapers they were national newspapers they were always conceived of as that way Um, and um, so they functioned as a sort of social media platform i guess you could say in in a primitive way uniting people who were surrounded by seeds of unbelievers and had, you know, allowed them to basically talk to each other. So that's, uh, that's one way in which they used their, you know, the emerging technology of newspaper distribution and subscription lists and cross references and so on. So it, uh, it was an interesting time in uh, history of newspapers itself in the United States. And uh, spirituals took um, full use of that, made you full use of that. So that's one thing. But um, there's another issue that's quite striking about spiritualism in general. Um, There was an emergence during this time of 
new technology uh, that was an inspiration to them, religiously, I think you'd have to say. Um, it looked to them like a harnessing of previously invisible forces, steam, electricity, and there were inventions that suggested to them that there was there were things in the world that hadn't been seen before, powers and potentialities that were being revealed to them unmistakably. Spiritual Telegraph, which is the name of one of the main papers back then, took its name from this kind of inspiration. The electronic telegraph had just been demonstrated, and it it was a miracle, basically, to many, many people. And there was some real conviction that there were things going on that were turning the times into a new era, uh, a new age, and that it was... It was, you could think of it as a sort of secular millennium. Heaven and earth were being joined. The visible and invisible spirit and matter were coming close together. Uh, The dead and the living would walk together. Space and time would be annihilated. And um, it was exciting to many people and a hopeful and optimistic time. That it was also somewhat distressing, um, annihilate. I, I think if you look at there's one uh, particular story of uh, called the Celestial Railroad that was written by um, David uh, Thoreau. And uh, this story is about a gentleman who gets on uh, the railroad uh, at, at some place, I forget. Anyway, all the points along the way are, are uh, named for the points of progress that the pilgrim makes in the old Pilgrim's Progress story. And by getting on the railroad, he just sails on past the slough of despond and vanity fair. He just sees out the window. And uh, it sails right on to, uh, you know, the heavenly city. But as he's moving into the heavenly city, waiting for the final stop, it does occur to him whether or not this this is going to be heaven or like it's reverse. Um, there was plenty of anxiety as well as optimism about it. And I think this is one of the things that made people, you know, hope for the best mm-hmm. with this secular millennium that was upon them. So I think the spiritualists were both impressed and somewhat at sea with the rest of everybody else about uh, this new world that was opening up before them. Mm-hmm. And there are a few spiritualist inventors who try to create technologies that will capture or um, become themselves a spiritual telegraph that will 
allow spirits to speak to people. You you write about John Murray Spear and there's the God Machine. Uh, decades later, there's the psychophone, right? Yes, there's a whole uh, series of um, machines for con connecting humans with the other world. Um, and uh, one of our co-directors on the IPSA project, Brandon Hodge, uh, really has made that his specialty. He's a collector. If you walk through his house, you see <laughs> it's kind of scary in a way, but uh, he's collected planchettes and Ouija boards and all kinds of stuff. But he's, he's very well up on this. This is really his, his, uh, his bailiwick. But uh, yes, there was... Um, but they didn't just uh, focus on machines to contact, make contact between the living and the dead, but they also put their minds at work to, to try to get inspiration, spirit help, to invent new machines that would, uh, that would help everybody. John Murray Spear, you mentioned, he, he worked on under the conviction that the spirits could give him and his fellow workers uh, new ideas for patenting that would avoid the patents of Singer and Howe uh, for perfecting the sewing machine and uh, spent quite a bit of time trying to um, materialize those, I guess you would say, into a workable machine. Um, another spiritualist um, you know, claimed to have invented vacuum canning, and I think she did. Uh, actually, so there were people that were looking, who were, who were thinking about uh, inspiration in a new way, who were open to ideas that they didn't know where where they were coming from. I think everybody actually has such experience of feeling that they've been inspired by, in the creative act, inspired by ideas that don't seem to them to be connected with anything that they actually tried to figure out or work from. Mm. And, that goes, and uh, spirituals were very, very, um, very much of that mind. Mm -hmm. That goes uh, way back, right, to the idea of the muse. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think the muse is personification of uh, something mysterious that, that works inside you. You know, in some ways, you can you can see there uh, something that connects the spiritualist movement, which began late eighteen forties with the earlier romantic movement. Um, they too were very much impressed with um, the idea that poetry was a holy art, and you could be inspired by um, resorting to Non your non-rational faculties and um, powers that were beyond your little self. And in the 1830s and 40s, kind of seeding the ground for modern spiritualism, there was all kind of interest in uh, mesmerism and animal magnetism and um, magnetized trances and some of those uh, practices that were considered kind of new horizons of applied science uh, of, of the of the human person of the mind of the soul uh, can you talk a little bit about how 
those ideas laid the groundwork for what would become spiritualism? Okay. Um, historically, there was a, a French mesmerist who, whose name was Charles Poyen, who decided to come to America and give a series of mesmeric demonstrations, as he called them, and um, spent most of his time around New England giving demonstrations of what we would recognize as hypnosis. And it very much impressed people. Um, and it created a roving mass of uh, other mesmeric demonstra demonstrators who plied their way around uh, the country uh, showing off what was possible here and the sort of miraculous things that that uh, people under hypnotic control uh, could be expected to do, one of which was clairvoyance. Some of their mesmeric subjects were seemed to be capable of leaving their bodies and traveling other places, coming back and reporting to the audience details that they couldn't know. Um, they might be able to uh, report being able to see into other people's bodies and figuring out, diagnosing their diseases and uh, prescribing what would cause them to heal. Um, this was a big shock to people. And uh, I think it was... As he said, laid the groundwork for the possibility that, um, well, you know, in a larger sense, I think you can see in, during that time that what we call the self was a mystery, was being revealed as a mystery, that, that it wasn't unitary, uh, or there was something underneath, hidden underneath, beyond what was on top of your consciousness that you usually identified as yourself. You know, people who, speaking about main narratives here, it is often said that one of the crises of modernism, of, of modern man that threw man into a tizzy, I mean capital M here, was um, Freud, Freud Darwin. Mm -hmm. But in Freud's case, it, it was that he discovered and made plausible the notion of a subconscious. But in fact, um, th this was an issue, had been an issue, um, and a matter of much anxiety back into the late 18th century. And the people that were wandering around showing off their mesmerism um, were certainly part of that. Uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, discussion or um, in the broader public realm, demonstrating that there were other uh, things going on inside the self that m might not be apparent. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, there are also changes in American religion. You write a lot uh, in your book, The Other Side of Salvation, about connections between especially uh, universalist ministers and spiritualists in the 1840s and 1850s. 
Can you talk a, a bit about um, the way that universalism's place in American religion uh, was another piece uh, of preparing the ground for spiritualism? Yes. Okay. Um, universalists were people who generally were what they call come-outers uh, of established religion. Now, come-outers is a term that they lifted out of a reference to the book of Revelation where the holy people are advised to come out of Babylon, the fallen, and uh, go off into the wilderness, separate themselves. And so um, there were many people who formed groups that thought of themselves as come-outers from either established religion or established government. And um, America was full of utopian projects and communes and so on, always has been. And uh, the universalists in particular were come-outers of what they called orthodoxy. Uh, that is probably too narrow a term to really understand without comment. What they meant by orthodoxy was a form of congregationalism uh, uh, based on mostly on what they understood of John Calvin. And the, the reason they came out of it was, or, or, or said that they came out, was because they, they were anxious. It didn't seem they were oppressed by the notion that, um, that there could be a God who would uh, force people into endless misery and that such people couldn't act to affect that. From their reading of Calvinism, it seemed that they were cut off from heaven. They were cut off from any effort to change their destiny. And that's a hard load to bear. Mm. And uh, so they declared for universal salvation instead, all people would be saved. Um, in some ways, it's taking Calvin and turning him up on his head. So um, that was how exactly they came out. Um, but, I mean, humans are humans, so they immediately began arguing about, well, if, if everybody goes to heaven straight off, no matter what they've done on earth, then that means, for example, that Judas, who hung himself after betraying Christ, got to heaven before Jesus did, his master. Uh, you know, opposing sort of extreme consequences on each other to try to figure out, well, maybe there is something going on in the afterlife that would be evolution. Uh, the soul would progress. It would move higher and higher. And that notion of progression in the afterlife was one of the things that definitely disposed universalists, particularly of the conviction that there was progress in the afterlife. You couldn't 
you couldn't just say that everyone was immediately saved. Uh, so you could speak to maybe spirits who would tell you about uh, what they were doing here and have conversations with you. And the afterlife was a place very much like this, except everybody was moving upward, you know, a little bit better day by day. Um, so that notion was really part of spiritualism from the beginning. And it was what you might say both attracted universalists to it as well as I think you could say that early spiritualism was, or you know, it, which was a, at the very beginning was a very chaotic group of phenomena, but it was universalist, mostly ministers that that uh, coagulated around it, glommed onto it, that formed its its most basic convictions about this. So, with it being these come outers who. Uh, are so helpful in addressing and and building up uh, a kind of a reputation for spiritualism. How did it then relate to those established uh, traditions, Christian traditions, um, with it being so involved with universalism? What was kind of the response of the 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 other Christian traditions uh, other than universalism to spiritualism following you know in the eighteen fifties? Say yeah, okay. Um, it's a very complex thing about the relationship between spiritualism and Christianity. In some ways, you can really see it as a sort of, uh, this is a loaded word, but a, a sort of parasitic upon Christian belief um, or is codependent with Christian belief, mainline Christian belief. But... Um, Clearly, the history of Christianity is very much in the direction that, hey, you're not supposed to call up the dead and talk to them. That's from absolutely forbidden. Um, and that's, that's just the way it always was. Uh, so most of the um, Christian population in the United States thought that this was not only crazy and full of fraud and duplicity, but it was also demonic. It was it had to do with idol worship and a resort to witches and soothsayers, fortune tellers, and so on. So there was there was that, and they found that the spiritualists found themselves quite a, uh, quite hammered on because uh, Christians faulted them for all that. On the other hand, spiritualists themselves were often conceived of themselves as, um, as if they were part of what you might call the second wave, the perfection of the Protestant Revolution, which was itself a sort of coming out. They were come-outers, the early Protestants, from the Catholic Church. Mm. So um, they themselves were of divided opinion uh, about their relationship with Christianity. Uh, some of them, some of the most famous spiritualists saw themselves as having come out completely out of Christianity uh, into um, 
secularism, atheism, free thought, and saw spiritualism as the enemy of Christianity. On the other hand, I wouldn't say that they were the majority of, of spiritualists. The majority of spiritualists, I think, saw themselves as a sort of Christianity plus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the kind and Did I answer that? Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, with the kind of op- opposition to spiritualism that you just described, uh, where the majority of Christians take a very negative view, uh, whether because they see it as idol worship or fraudulent or demonic, um, it seems maybe surprising that spiritualism spread so quickly and even became a global movement, got picked up, you know, traveling back to to France and to England and to Germany and the Caribbean and Australia. Um, what made this kind of distinctive modern spiritualism attractive beyond the context in which it first appeared? Well, I think it's probably common human aspiration to try to know about the afterlife. Death is a worrisome thing. If there's an answer somewhere and you can be made to believe it, it's certainly something you'd want to pay attention to no matter where you were on earth. That's one way to answer your question, I suppose. Mm. Um, Another way is to sort of comb into the finer details of what actually did get spread. There is a a variety, you might say, of spiritualism that was uh, shared through personal contacts and through English language. Um, that you could think of as Anglo-American spiritualism. And this was something that was has always been predominant in the United States, in Britain, in Australia. But there is a wider form of spiritualism that I think was inspired by uh, the early experiences of American spiritualists and referred to it, often referred to it, but this form was developed by essentially and and was essentially spread by the writings of a a French, um, he called himself a spiritist Mm. to distinguish himself from spiritualists. And uh, his name was Alan Kardec, or that was his pseudonym anyway. And uh, the big difference, I think, there is that uh, he believed in and wrote in his all his works, uh, reincarnation, reincarnation, and that was something that was absolutely uh, surprising and even anathema to Anglo-American spiritualists mm. who regarded the afterlife and the soul's further progression as something that was onward and upward, maybe with varying degrees of velocity, but it wasn't coming back to Earth as a uh, materialized being. So that's uh, that form of spiritualism is something that took hold in France and southern parts of Europe 
and then spread through uh, Brazil, other parts of other parts of the world. Mm. Um, most of the Brazilians in Brazil has a has a huge population and a large, probably the largest spiritist population uh, of any country in the world, and they're followers of Kardec, and therefore reincarnation is a part of their belief. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's jump into the stories of a few particular mediums. Um, so I'll ask you, I didn't have him in this outline that I prepared for us, but... Uh, okay, spring it on me. <laughs> well, you've written about it. You've written I may about remember him. the name. Sure. I don't know. Well, it's John Bovey Dodds. <laughs> it's John Bovey Dodds who okay. you've written about. He was one of those universalist ministers, uh, gets into spiritualism, at one point becomes an opponent of spiritualism over the course of the 1850s, and then comes back to it. So I found his story really interesting. Um, can you can you t- walk us through kind of who he was and his relationship to spiritualism? Are you, are you comfortable with that? Uh, I think so. I don't know if I'm going to be able to say much more than you just did. Okay. Though, I'll give it my best shot. Um, he was uh, John Bovey Dodds. I won't go into all the details about how he got that name, but it was a kind of family name. Anyway, he was, he was, um, he first had his spirit experience walking through the woods one day. Um, this was about 1801. Seven, eight, something like that. Um, when he encountered the spirit of his father, who uh, spoke to him and told him some things. When when the boy got home, he told his family uh, that he'd seen his father out in the woods, and they thought he was crazy or you know sick somehow. Um, but he did encounter his father's spirit in the woods repeatedly, and then. He also later, the spirit of of another relative of his who had committed suicide, and so according to, again, orthodoxy, I suppose it's, I've put it in quotation marks for everybody at this point, uh, orthodoxy would would definitely consign to everlasting misery. Uh, She appeared to him as a glorious spirit clothed in light, and told him that things were coming to a head and he would be revealed, uh, things would be revealed to him that uh, would convert him from um, mistaken beliefs. And after that, he started uh, experiencing um, what we would call today paranormal uh, phenomena, furniture would start to move across the room. People who were in the house would hear, heard, I, I think one group of them experienced hearing but not seeing a cannonball traveling across the room and then jumping onto the bed one day and depressing the mattress and all of this by some sort of invisible thing that couldn't possibly be material. Um, One day, this glorified spirit uh, grabbed off his hat and (laughs) threw it in the air and sailed around for a mile or so. He watched it in the air and it came back and landed on his head. 
he became, uh, you can imagine uh, that he developed some fairly strong beliefs about the reality of not only the afterlife, but also because of this experience that his supposedly damnable uh, relative had achieved some high and glorious state, he also came to question orthodoxy as well. So that was his early experience. He became a universalist minister and then got really fascinated with uh, the mesmeric demonstrations of Poyan and some of his fellow universalist ministers and became, um, became a demonstrator himself and spent quite a bit of time um, essentially doing experiments in hypnosis on himself and his family members and anybody else they could drag into it. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and he even, as I recall, he even tried it on his congregation. Um, to what extent, I can't, I don't know, but I'm imagining him standing on, you know, on the platform in front of the congregation trying to put his trying to put his congregation in a trance of some kind. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's some comic potential there, Carl. Like, you, know, you could develop it later into something. Um, the sources are not clear enough for me to imagine it very well. But mm -hmm. anyway, mm. um, as a result of this, he developed this theory that there were, in fact, um, There were two minds at work. In other words, one of his critics said, every man is engaged in thinking thoughts of which he's profoundly unconscious. He carries in his own brain a separate world of mind, endowed with the power of sustaining masterly arguments, imparting various and astounding information before wholly unknown and answering with readiness many difficult questions without his own knowledge of the fact. And yes, this was what he was proposing, that there was what we would call a subconscious at work. The mind was something that may have been a machine, but it was made up of wheels within wheels, that there were things going on that we were not conscious of. This was a big pill to swallow for a lot of people. Essentially what it did was it moved him off a spirit interpretation of his own experiences onto a more materialistic explanation. Mm -hmm. And for a long time he taught that. He wrote, in fact, uh, a long book and a very influential one about uh, spiritualism in which he basically dissolved it into something that was a physical or mental phenomenon. And uh, the opponents of spiritualism were very grateful for his book and used it quite a bit. But what happened to him was um, the spirit started coming back to him and berating him repeatedly that he'd erred, he'd gone off the track here. And to such a strong degree did they, did they appear to him that he 
was made to repent his materialism and go back to being uh, a spiritualist. So that was the way he continued to be a spiritualist and to um, be an activist in the spiritualist movement um, based in New York for a long time until his death. Um, that's great. Thank you. Um, let's jump to, uh, another one of the figures that you've written about a lot, but that few other historians and scholars seem to have really explored. And that's John Conklin. Um, the, uh, I had to dig him up out of the grave, Carl. Yes. Yes. And, and I'm so glad you did. So, uh, introduce him to, to our listeners and <laughs> to the world, you know, uh, who was John Conklin and, and how did he get involved in spiritualism? And then of course we'll walk toward the white house with him as, as we go. Okay. Um, John Benjamin Conklin was, uh, a member of the proletariat. He was a sailor, a baker. He had various odd jobs. Um, he was born, well, in Upper New York, I mean, Upper New York City, near Bronx, and uh, spent a long time um, working on the docks and in the ships. And he'd always been fascinated by magic, performing magic, apparently. And when Spiritualism first broke, and he began hearing about raps on the tables and people going into trances and connecting with spirits of the dead. He was, he was an early adopter and transformed himself into a medium who used it to make a living. He opened up offices in New York City uh, which he moved from time to time. And not only did he take um, individuals for consultations in which they would pay him for, uh, for his being able to contact dead spirits, or should I say living spirits anyway, mm. but they, he also set up a kind of... Um, exhibition space, uh, performance space, I guess, uh, quite near Barnum's Museum. And people would come to that as part of their experience of the big city. They would visit Barnum's Museum. Uh, they might take in some other sites, but they would also visit his spirit room in which they would sit around in a big circle, rows and rows of, of uh, people who, who looked at what was going on in the center, and he would face off, basically, on, against a, a table, a table between them, someone of the, of the audience. And a bit it was like, you know, the people who were sitting around the outside would take a number and... I don't know if this is exactly true, I don't remember, but when their turn came up, and that was their time to go down and sit opposite the table of Conklin. And uh, he would um, 
in those kinds of situations, he would um, answer their questions um, and uh, use, often by this, <clears throat> excuse me, this method of having the person write little questions that they wanted answered by the spirits on a piece of, on a slip of paper. And they would roll up the slip of paper, bunch it up so that he couldn't see it, uh, ostensibly as a guard against fraud. And then he would take these pieces of paper and roll them up in his hands and then throw them down with a bunch of other supposedly blank slips of paper. Um, this was called billet reading or ballot reading. Um, the billets were the little slips of paper. And then he would pull out one or two slips of paper and, and uh, hold it against his forehead and answer the question that was written on it. These were questions directed to spirits, basically, that the people wanted to contact. He also held um, private, more or less private seances in which um, there was the use of a wrapping board. In the early days of spiritualism, you know, there were these just random wraps that would um, emerge in a dark room. And these were attributed to spirits. Well, they were attributed earlier to ghosts. So what was the, what was the big deal here? Mm. Well, the big deal was that these ghosts or spirits could be communicated with. There was a spiritual telegraph. You could, you could, the raps could be interpreted as like the clicks on a telegraph. So the means that was used was um, you would count. If there was one rap, it was an A. If there were two raps, it was a B, and so on through the alphabet. So basically you had to sit around and wait for a message, um, which would be a series of raps. Um, and I can't imagine, but it was boring to sit around and wait for the whole <laughs> message to to wrap itself out one note at a time. Anyway, he would do this. This was the early technology, you might say, of of uh, spiritualism, but it did it did develop into a more efficient system as things went along. Um, but he he used whatever he could that way. Anyway, he got to be one of four or five pretty famous or notorious, you might say, um, spiritualist operators uh, in New York City at the time before the war. Mm. Emma Harding is another one, Emma Harding Britain, that we're following. And he was in her milieu, right? They knew each other. They sometimes worked together. Yes. I'm not sure how much they actually worked together. That's, a, that's an interesting question. But I do know that Emma Harding was essentially converted by him. She went to a seance in which there were these wraps, one of these ones I've described wrapping out a message. And the spirits were um, allegedly delivering a message that she regarded as blasphemous. Mm. And uh, so she freaked out and, and left. And, uh, but she went back curious a couple of times and became convinced that spiritualism was real. And I suppose 
She also became convinced that it wasn't blasphemous, but something elevated. Um, so that was her connection. That was mm-hmm. her direct connection with Conklin anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, there's another interesting moment in his life uh, where he's, you wrote about what you called a raucous public seance in 1854, where there was kind of a debate between the spirits of Daniel Webster, uh, spoken through another medium, and Henry Clay, spoken through Conklin. And this creates a connection to, to Lincoln for him. Can you talk about that seance? What strikes me about that particular seance is that there were two people entranced same time, who were delivering messages in the voice of two actors. It was sort of improv, wasn't it? Um, one was playing off the other in a way that we wouldn't expect, except outside of a or modern improvisational theater. And neither one knew what the other one was going to say. But they'd been prepped, or they'd prepped themselves, of course, obviously, with knowledge of who these actors were, what their political positions were, and so on. And so we're, in a way, that or making uh, making riffs on the position of Henry Clay or Daniel Webster. It was a kind of dramatization, wasn't it, mm. of... Uh, of what these now deceased people would would say on the issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's and probably the, not what you're driving at, though, is it? Well, no, that's right. There's just in in what you wrote about Conklin, um, because Henry Clay was uh, such a, a mentor figure and an inspiration to Lincoln. Um, you mentioned in your in your book about Conklin that this might have been the moment when he caught Lincoln's attention in 1854, um, that would then perhaps have brought him into uh, Lincoln's orbit during the war in Washington, but let's just, let's just step to that time. Uh, well, it may, it may have happened that way, but um, I am fairly sure that uh, Lincoln had seen him before and had sat in his New York um, exhibition room, mm. um, maybe not in a fully engaged way, but in a curious sort of way and asked him questions, submitted questions to him before. Mm-hmm. So then when we get to the war years, John Conklin, along with uh, Nettie Colburn uh, and a few others, were spiritualists, uh, mediums, who claimed to have influenced Lincoln, uh, even to the point of some claims about uh, directly dictating the Emancipation Proclamation from the spirits to him and those kinds of things. Um, How much do we know about the seances in the Lincoln White House, and how involved these mediums were. Well, I hope that everything we know is in the book I just published. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, cert- I certainly tried to put everything I knew about it in there, but right, um, it's a uh, a lot of it. Uh, what we claim to know or claim to be false um, came out. Um, essentially much later, mm-hmm. around 1890, when uh, uh, a medium, spirit, spirit medium, who had been in Washington during the Lincoln years and who had certainly been in the White House and involved with other spiritualists at the time, 
uh, published her memoirs, um, I happen to believe that um, Nettie Colburn, while while she was a medium and working in Washington, uh, she wasn't a professional medium, and she may not even have been noticed much by other more famous mediums at the time. Um, she was a member of a group of friends who were spiritualists and more or less direct access to the president. But um, by the time her memoirs came out, it obviously been amplified by people during that time, and I mean by that, the 1890s, who had a lot at stake at mm -hmm. uh, claiming that uh, Lincoln was essentially being directed by spirits all the time. And so I try to sort through those claims in the book. And um, Nettie may not have been the most um, famous or, or even notorious medium who was in the Lincoln's orbit, but she definitely was there. John Conklin was uh, definitely there too, although a, lo a lot of the action seems to have taken place off stage, as it were, in the home of uh, postmaster, not, not postmaster, but a post office em employee, a civil service employee, um, whose family was uh, quite devoted to spiritualist men who thought of themselves as mediums. It was a, they lived in Georgetown, and Lincoln visited there. I'm pretty sure of that. There's a lot of testimony that's quite solid that he did that. Mm. And I, I think it's also pretty solid that Mrs. Lincoln, in particular, was devoted to a full believer in spiritualism, um, that she invited mediums to the White House, that they conducted seances there. I'm inclined to believe that her husband took part in, at least as an interested observer, in many of those seances. Uh, typically, the line of historians has been, well, he just went to protect his wife, which may have been the case, actually, uh, in some in some respects. But uh, I think he, it's the evidence is pretty clear that he was listening very, very closely. Mm -hmm. And uh, Conklin was one of those. There were others. There was um, there was a medium who was probably brought down to the White House to, I think you'd have to say, minister to the Lincoln after their son had died. And um, she had a reputation for being a healing medium who could see inside the body and prescribe healing medications and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was also they were well they were well protected by their guards there was a cordon of p 
people ranging from his secretary to, um, you know, all kinds of folks who were very protective of his reputation and did not particularly want the idea that Lincoln was listening to mediums in the White House and getting advice on the conduct of the war to get out. Mm-hmm. So it, it's pretty difficult to sort through those kinds of conflicting and uh, you know conflicting testimonies mm-hmm. but I did my best here yeah yeah <laughs> um, do you have any comments on uh, Colchester well he was a rogue he was a, um, a man often prosecuted for fraud um, um, and by that I mean presenting himself as an exhibitor of messages from the spirits that were, he was caught in as having faked. Mm -hmm. Um, He was uh, a mountebank. He warmed, he was giving exhibitions that were in Washington, D.C. that were uh, well attended by all the upper segments of society there. He was... um, brought into the White House to to give uh, seances for Mary Todd Lincoln and was investigated. Uh, I mean, I think this is, this is the source of where you hear that uh, Lincoln had to protect his wife from unscrupulous mediums because this is basically what he did with, with Colchester. Mm. Uh, he had the, because he was suspicious of the guy, he had the, um, I think he was the head of the Smithsonian Institute, um, recommend somebody to come and, you know, give his opinion on this guy. And he, he essentially declared him a fake. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lincoln's friends, one of them was a journalist, uh, essentially collared Colchester and and told him to get out of town um, or, you know, he'd make things hot for him, which he did Mm. um, before he made off with the White House silver, basically. And, yeah, and there's records. I've looked at the, uh, what was published in the newspapers about Colchester's later jugglery trial, the the fraud, the fraud trial. Yes. Um, Yeah. Um, So then... Uh, you've also written about that lock of hair that was probably given to the Lorries, the, f- the family of mediums. Um, can you describe that lock of hair and why it would have been that they would have been able to take possession of it? Well, the problem was presented to me as uh, something that appeared on the internet. Um, the Chicago Museum um, displayed to the public as a sort of, um, what would you say, um, mystery for them to solve. Okay, here's a bunch of fun things that we have in our, in our possession that we don't know what about. And one of these things was a lock of hair. They have a lot of Lincoln curios and memorabilia, by the way. And, um, they reproduced a piece of paper that came along with it. And it said, um, 
Lincoln lock of hair uh, taken from him immediately after death. And there were names at the bottom that were a little difficult to read, but not, not very difficult to read. And I looked at it and I recognized those names. Uh, the names were of um, the two of the members of the Lorry family that I've already talked about lived in Georgetown, mother and the daughter. And so it occurred to me, I mean, not only just, hey, Chicago Museum, I know who these people are, but how, how and why they would have gotten hold of this thing. Um, and I think it's by, by pursuing my question, um, I looked in detail at the last moments of Lincoln's life before he passed away and the following moments and discovered descriptions of the physicians being asked by Mary Todd Lincoln to cut her a lock of hair from Lincoln's head. And the physicians themselves, a couple of them, did the same and took those. The other person I wanted to talk about in this context is uh, Henry Steele Alcott. Um, because he comes in, he's one of the investigators of the Lincoln assassination and then becomes a figure important to spiritualism and then theosophy later. Uh, can you introduce him to us? Who was Henry Steele Alcott? Henry Steele Alcott was um, a man of many professions. He was a professional lawyer. He, he, was, um, he was a journalist. He had been sent, for example, by the, um, I think it was the New York Tribune to um, cover John Brown's execution in Harper Ferry, Harper's Ferry which involves some undercover work on his part because basically that the public weren't, uh, wasn't invited to that. Um, he wound up wandering the town there and writing his account of that at the same time that Alan Pinkerton, who wound up as the head of the, essentially what became the Secret Service for the United States during the, during the Civil War, was also there um, sort of undercover. Um, so he was involved with John Brown. He was an abolitionist. He was a reformer. And I think from an early age, like maybe 14, he was quite interested in spiritualism. Uh, and it was part of that interest while he was um, working on assignment for the New York Daily Graphic. I think it's 74. 74, okay. Yeah. That he was um, sent to investigate, and probably he, this was his own idea, but anyway, he was sent up to Vermont to investigate this uh, amazing place run by a family named Eddie. Uh, they had set up a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, the spiritualists, Branson, Missouri or something. They, they had a spirit house where they would give exhibitions of materialized spirits and guitars would float around in the air and mu ethereal music would come and um, phosphorescent hands would float about um, in the air and so on. So he was sent up there. And when he was up there, 
he was up there for a long time, many weeks. He met uh, a woman named Helena Blavatsky, who was also there to investigate what was going on. She was also a spiritualist, at least at that time, um, and had come to New York and was living there. And uh, they met, and he became uh, attached to her, enamored of her. And when they got back to New York, he published uh, his findings uh, that disappointed a lot of people, but also inspired a lot of people because he essentially said, well, there's um, a lot of miraculous things going on there I can't explain. So that was regarded as a sort of positive assessment of the Eddie uh, family's performances. Mm -hmm. uh, he and Madame Blavatsky uh, were instrumental in forming a uh, sort of uh, paranormal research society or fraud, well, I don't know what you call it, like a fraud investigatory uh, society that would allegedly go around and try to expose different fraudulent spiritualist practices. Mm -hmm. But that uh, then turned into, in just, just a little while, it turned into, uh, under, especially under Madame Blavatsky's influence, turned into uh, a more, you might say, positive um, society that had its own goals and that was what turned into the Theosophical Society. That was just a couple of years later. I think it was 1875. Mm -hmm. um, that's great. Let's, uh, there, there are a number of other people we've talked about, Conklin, we've talked a little bit about uh, Alcott. Um, there are a number of other people who we're, we're following in the course of our kind of narrative history of spiritualism. Um, and there's one, we're going to step back a little bit in time because I'd really like to talk about Cora Hatch and her significance to spiritualism. And, you know, so we'll go back and kind of start in the 1850s, but go forward from there. Um, she, she becomes a really significant medium. Uh, what do we know about her early life? Can you talk at all about who she was and where she came from? Yes. Cora Scott was born in the town of Cuba, New York. It's in Allegheny County in 1804. And her family, as she described it later, was entirely free of the bonds of any orthodoxy. Uh, I think you can read that in considering what her father finally did. Uh, as being open to, certainly to universalist doctrine, uh, but maybe to other things, more free thought-like stuff. Anyway, he was a lumber mill operator up there, and uh, he got interested in the doctrines of a fairly famous uh, universalist come-outer who had named Aidan Ballou, who had formed a colony, uh, a settlement about 40 miles west of Boston uh, that he named Hopedale uh, in 1841. And uh, 
the family, he took his family back and forth, basically, between Cuba, New York, and Oakdale uh, throughout Cora's early life. She was, um, I think she was probably 10 when they decided to move to Hopedale. And they did for a little while, but for one reason or another, they found it maybe too crowded or not entirely to their liking. Uh, they set out for west to um, finally wound up near Waterloo, Wisconsin, and made a home there. And it was while she was there I think she was 11 years old, when she would have her first um, conversion to, although I don't know what it means to be converted to to a belief when you're 11 years old, but uh, had her conversion to some kind of spiritualist experience. Meanwhile, back in Hopedale, that community was in full swing spiritualist interested. Um, Baloo was, by that time, um, giving sermons uh, to his followers uh, in a sort of elevated trance state, supposedly under the direction of spirits because there were rappings going on all around the room. Anyway, there was obviously connection between Hopedale and uh, the little community in uh, Waterloo, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And it was in that environment that uh, she developed herself into uh, a medium. I think the first media, uh, first spirit control, as it were, that she had was the son of Aidan Ballou, Aidan Augustus Ballou, who died um, early in his life. And uh, I'm not quite sure how to um, express this, but became her voice. She mm. lent her body and voice to him, or at least to his spirit. And um, that was the main way that she became known as a spiritualist and made her career as someone who, in trance, would be taken over by various spirits, uh, mostly of the well-known and authoritative figures who were, um, you know, her spirit control. She also had, it developed a, a series of Indian spirit controls. One of them was named Weena. One of them was uh, named Shenandoah. Um, there were a bunch of those as well. In her early career, she also did some, I don't know what you'd call it, spiritualist laying on of hands, healing um, healing work, but it was under the direction of somebody she described as a German physician, a uh, spirit of a German physician. Mm-hmm. So that was her early work. Mm-hmm. But it was basically, basically Cora Scott's um, career consisted of standing before an audience personating, as I would say, I wouldn't say impersonating, but personating, I, I guess that's a stronger term, personating the spirits of the famous departed. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson, Daniel Webster, um, Theodore Parker was a, was a 
longtime spirit control of hers and speaking in those as as if they were present there. That was that was her career. Mm-hmm. She was very uh, obviously very gifted, very gifted uh, improvisational speaker, um, and she produced a lot of uh, uh, spur of the moment um, poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have to make your own judgment about the value of the poetry, but there's no denying that if it was done truly without preparation, um, it was pretty impressive. Mm. Um, do we, do you, do you have a sense, uh, of the kinds of things that spirits were saying through Korah? Was there some consistency between these different figures? Was there some affinity to certain ideas or theologies, uh, that she would speak, that her spirit controls would deliver through her at these, at these trans lectures? I don't think it was so much, uh, that Carl, I think it was, her speaking to the events and the anxieties of the moment, she could um, become the mouthpiece of Henry Clay. She could become the mouthpiece of John C. Calhoun. She could become the mouthpiece of Abraham Lincoln. She could become the mouthpiece of pretty much anybody who was uh, who people were looking to or might be looking to for advice. Um, a cynic might say she was looking for an angle that would appeal to a lot of people Mm. about subjects that were in the news at the time and were anxiously seeking some kind of advice about. She was good at that. Mm. Can you describe... She She was also good at convincing people from high to low positions in the government and society that she was, in fact, giving them the advice that, say, Abraham Lincoln was, would have given if he were still with us after the war. Mm. Mm -hmm. She quite influenced the thinking of high-ranking congressmen who were involved in the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson to believe that he was involved in an assassination conspiracy. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the transcripts of seances she held with many of the people who were involved at the the highest level um, in Congress um, with matters of state, um, especially regarding the radical Republicans' reconstruction plan mm. uh, and the impeachment hearings, you can see that she was um, convincing, at least, to those people that were running the show, mm-hmm. the radical Republicans who were running the show. Um, from an outsider's point of view, it looks like she's... Um, she's been tasting the zeitgeist of gossip and rumors around town, and uh, and that's what she was channeling. Mm. Mm. Channeling, by the way, is a very modern word. I just want to—it's a very convenient word, but people back until I guess I, I looked 
up this a little bit. I did, did a little research on it, but channeling to channel, channeler, those things that we find so easy to describe this sort of phenomena didn't really appear until maybe the 1940s or 50s. Mm, that's a great comment. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay. Um, be, before we got to that point in the 1860s, there was, um, even as her popularity was growing, it was growing in coordination with her first husband, Benjamin Hatch. Uh, and then they had uh, a divorce proceeding that was very, very public, uh, drawn out. Can you describe her relationship to Benjamin Hatch, who he was, and then what happened with their marriage? Yes. Um, Benjamin Hatch was an um, alternative physician. In that time, that could mean almost anything. In his case, it meant that he was one who was very intent on using mesmerism as part of his um, tools. So he was a mesmeric physician. That often meant that he either hired a clairvoyant to work with him to diagnose his patient's ailments or that he himself um, mesmerized his patients. But he was also a demonstrator of mesmeric phenomena, magnetic phenomena, as he called it. And um, a lot of those folks made a living out of it. In fact, that profession became... Uh, what was later put on the vaudeville stage, you know, a hundred years later as stage hypnosis. Um, and when he saw Cora, she was probably 30 years younger than he was, maybe even more. And he romanced her and married her and became her I think you'd have to call him road manager for touring her around the country. So there was some tension right from the beginning because they were so much older from, uh, you know, he was so much older than her. But also, um, you know, the kinds of things that crop up in marriage. Well, he's keeping all the money. He's not giving me any. He's stepping out on me and seeing all these other women and, um, you know, those sorts of things. So when um, that became public knowledge, when she filed for divorce, by the way, she did not file for divorce at first. She filed actually for merely separation mm. with alimony. Um, it made the papers and a lot of people, especially in the spiritualist community, were outraged at the charges against this brute. And uh, a lot of her spiritualist friends rose up and basically took her under their wing. And um, so the preliminaries were um, taken care of pretty quickly, but the legal difficulties there were drawn out years and years longer. Uh, she did not get uh, finally divorced from him until just before the Civil War. Um, claims and counterclaims back and forth. Uh, during that time, 
basically after the just after the first separation, uh, Benjamin Hatch um, replied to Cora and her protectors with uh, a long book that accused spiritualists of um, the most immoral and lascivious practices and accusing spiritualists as a whole of um, of um, immorality and all kinds of things that would dissolve Christian tradition and so on. It was clearly he was talking about people finding uh, what they called affinities and um, linking up with them, mm -hmm. uh, leaving their wives and husbands and sleeping with other people. Mm -hmm. And while he didn't name Cora, uh, as among that group, it was obvious that uh, this was his, um, you know, he was talking about her and others in the community. You mentioned that Cora develops relationships with a number of other mediums. You said some of them take her under their wing. Um, Emma Harding is, is one of those. Do you, um, would you be able to describe their relationship? Not very well. Okay. Not very well. I know they were friends. Um, they were co-workers. They were co-leaders of the movement. Um, Emma Hardinge, uh, she uh, had, a, at least in her book, Modern American Spiritualism, which was a kind of compendium of, of the history of the movement, uh, was very complimentary to her, uh, reproduced this wonderful um, picture of her with golden ringlets looking heavenward to the sky and the sun glinting off her face very when she was 15 years old um, but also regarded her as a as a prime if not the prime um, uh, trans medium of the time mm -hmm. Emma's Emma may have herself um, have done some mediumship, private mediumship, but she wasn't one who named names of spirits who controlled her. When she gave lectures under spirit inspiration, you might say, she didn't um, direct people's attention to necessarily who, the, who it was that was controlling her, which spirit. It was rather more vague than that. But certainly Cora did. Mm -hmm. She announced beforehand who was going to take control of her and speak to her. Um, it was really also interesting to, to discover that through kind of spiritualist circles, including uh, Amy Post in Rochester, uh, Cora got to know Sojourner Truth, who's another person whose story we're following over the course of spiritualism. Uh, and there was a time when, when Truth was working in the Freedmen's Hospital uh, after the war that Cora actually came and stayed with Truth uh, and, and lived with her for a time. And there were letters back and forth between her and Amy Post talking about life with Sojourner in the Freedmen's Hospital. You know, some of these, these pieces and storylines that we don't always think of as connected, uh, following certain spiritualists like Cora can take us through so many of them, from mesmerism in Benjamin to Reconstruction and Sojourner Truth and the radicalism of Amy Post. Um, so I find Cora fascinating for that reason. She also, uh, in well, later... Go ahead. May yeah. I say this? Yeah. Um, 
there's another connection there. Um, Clara Barton was a devoted spiritualist. I think if you visit Clara Barton's house outside of D.C., um, that information is sort of available if you prod the curators in the National Park Service a little bit, but it's not something they necessarily want to uh, <laughs> proclaim about Clara, mm. but she was a very devoted spiritualist. She uh, attended Cora's seances in Washington, um, and that's obviously in some kind of connection with the Freedmen's Hospital. Uh, the, and the Freedmen's Bureau itself was uh, one of the centers of the post-war government that had a lot of spiritualists assigned to it. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, because most spiritualists, especially those in Washington, were former abolitionists and were uh, working, you know, to free the slaves and so on. In fact, the um, the head of the uh, the first head of the colored schools of Washington, uh, which were set up in conjunction with the Freedmen's Bureau was a very long-time spiritualist named Alonzo Newton, who was uh, connected, of course, with John Murray Spears' New Motor Project, but he was also the uh, the editor of the New England Spiritualist and a co-editor of several other spiritualist newspapers. Um, so there's a lot of connections in Washington if you go down uh, just below the surface. And... Cora continues to be involved. Uh, well, she, she has a couple of different husbands. She marries Nathan Daniels, travels with him to New Orleans where he'd been stationed uh, during the Civil War and uh, been in command of the Native Guards, including some New Orleans spiritualists. Um, then he dies there. She returns back north and really, it seems to me, uh, embraces and just dives into her spiritualist connections and continues to be a significant presence in the kind of uh, building a lasting institutional base for spiritualism in the in the later decades, um, can you talk at all about her involvement in trying to create something stable that would last for spiritualism going forward into the future? I think Cora. This is my impression. Okay, I think Cora always had an eye to getting a stable position and an eye towards getting a formal leadership in the movement. Mm. The movement itself was fairly fragmented. Uh, I mean, essentially it was made up of independent-minded and from the outside anyway, eccentric individuals who uh, followed their own ideas and paths. So the spiritualists were notorious for being unable to form lasting institution or association. Uh, they'd had several tries at it, extending all the way back to early 1850s. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Cora saw her own career as one of taking leadership in, as you said, a stable organization and planting something that would last beyond her. Of course, you might say with her as as head, but um, <laughs> anyway, I think it, that was definitely on her mind um, towards later in life. Um, 
she tried several times to establish uh, spiritualist churches, important spiritualist churches with herself as head. And the very fact that I'm calling it a church, you might say, is a something that came late to the movement, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. um, because it hints that what she's looking at is a sort of denomination um, with definite beliefs. And, of course, the early spiritualists were, were all anti-denominational, and they didn't really see themselves as uh, just another denomination with preachers and ministers and so on. She did have a, a, a big church, a very popular church in Chicago uh, for a long time before the uh, National Spiritualist Association was formed. But around 1892, in conjunction with a very large and, in retrospect, very influential meeting event that occurred in Chicago, in conjunction with the um, Columbian Exposition there in 1893, um, there was what was called the World's Parliament of Religions, a big ecumenical movement, and there were many people from different faiths who were invited to participate in this and give speeches and so on. And I think she saw this as a prime time for setting up, giving another try to forming a lasting organization among spiritualists. I I think it was a way, you might say, of getting validation for spiritualism as such as a quote, real religion, able to step out and walk among the other religions. So in fact, you know, that event happened across town from Cora's spiritualist church. And um, it is alleged that she gave a trance lecture to the World Parliament of Religions about spiritualism. I myself have been unable to find such evidence as to lead me that she did, in fact, directly address that that world parliament. But she did also organize the first uh, convention, annual and formative convention, of the National Spiritualist Association, which happened the next week, the days following the World Parliament of Religion. So she was elected vice president, and uh, she stayed connected with the organization for many, many years. She often gave the keynote address in their annual meetings and so on. You mentioned earlier a little bit about uh, some of the investigations of spiritualism uh, that were going on, Uh, and we are going to address the Societies for Psychical Research uh, some would you be would you be comfortable describing them a little bit and and what their approach to spiritualism was? Okay, I can contribute a little bit. I'd, it's not exactly the area. I mean, the era that I'm most familiar with. But um, yeah, I'm. I mean, it's obvious. I think it's obvious that such societies were formed um, with a view to take the investigation of psychic meaning, including spiritualist phenomena, and put it under scientific scrutiny, which meant 
controlled conditions, mm. re repeated tests and so on, by scientists who, who were trained to observe and test and eliminate possibilities and so on. Um, and I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's so much that scientists decided to take spiritualism and put it under the microscope so much as science itself had tracked alongside the way spiritualists themselves thought about these phenomena. Mm. Uh, as we've already described, Spiritualists were fellow travelers, if you will, with mesmerists and so on back in, back in the early days. And it became more and more common for spiritualists to think about the phenomenon that was going on as a kind of psychological phenomenon, one kind or another. In other words, to accept the possibility that what we were exploring was the mind and the powers of the mind rather than some real, you might say objectively, externally, substantially real uh, afterlife. I think that became an acceptable alternative uh, narrative within spiritualism and it was because of that, I think, that you could think of uh, the Psychical Research Society and so on as an evolution of that tendency within spiritualism itself. Um, spiritualists, I think, by that time, often resorted to a sort of unspoken acceptance of the idea that I don't know where these things are coming from, and I don't know what's going on exactly, um, but they're really interesting, aren't they? And they're uncanny, and they're weird, and somehow the conditions of the mind of the medium and the minds of the spectators are involved in this. And so um, I think that was an opportunity for scientists who were also interested in the science of the mind and psychology, like William James, for example, mm. uh, to uh, set out um, to see what they could find out about it. Did this kind of thinking about abnormal psychology and, and kind of what started being published from Freud and new ways of thinking about the human mind. Did it sap interest in spiritualism from the outside? What was that kind of, what was the influence on maybe like general interest in spiritualism? Just as an intuitive answer, I would say, yes, it did. It, it drew people, it certainly drew people away from um, the simple explanation of what was going on here was that the spirits of George Washington or 
your Uncle Charlie were speaking directly to you and that you had nothing to do with it and that you were just a mere radio receiver who'd been turned on and your own mind had been turned off. And you were just uh, an automaton if you were a medium. I think that sort of explanation uh, became less and less appealing to people. And uh, as an alternative, they became more and more attracted to this other alternative explanation that it was uh, an exploration into mysteries of the mind mm. and how the mind in turn affected external realities. Maybe we could uh, not only read people's minds, transfer thoughts, but we could create um, create a world that we could treat anyway as as well as we treated the the objective world, or maybe the objective world itself didn't really exist, and we were all a, a creation of mind. Uh, that was certainly an early position within spiritualism, mm. and mm -hmm. it was something that was emphasized by Mary Baker Eddy in Forming Christian Science mm -hmm. and that continued with um, investigators uh, who called themselves mental scientists and was a big factor in the creation of a movement that I regard as the successor to spiritualism, which was called New Thought. Mm -hmm. Mind over matter. You can bring success, health, wealth, money, dollars. Dollars want you, Carl, if you could only create the conditions in your mind that would allow them to, to form. These were all questions that were, you might call, um, alternative psychological explanations for psychic phenomena. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of people got drawn off into that. There was also in the in the eighteen seventies and eighties increasing interest in uh, well, we've talked about the the private seances and the wrappings and the trance lectures, but we also have uh, materialization mediums, and uh, and then ectoplasm becomes one of the phenomena that people are coming for. Um, you know, coming to a seance to witness and observe. Can you talk about how some of those changes and what was going on at a seance changed the the meaning of spiritualism, the social meaning or the religious meaning for some people? I think about that as uh, part of this notion that the process that was going on in this new era was the elevation of earth to heaven and the drawing down of heaven to earth and the resulting communion of saints where those on earth would be walking with those in heaven. Now, if you think about it, that means that there was some real desire from the very beginning to make material or bring to earth, not just the voices or the ideas of those in heaven, but more 
maybe the end point of all this was to materialize heaven on earth, Hmm. to join it together. And you can read in the spiritualist newspapers at the time this sense that there was a progression towards that in which maybe one medium would be able to um, produce a materialized, filmy fluid, um, something that would float around the room, or would be able to push a guitar or strum it, even though you couldn't see it. But then there was some desire maybe to materialize and make visible a hand, hands that would... um, stroke a person's head or push a button or something like that. And then there was an arm and then there was a news article. It was like a rumor mill in a way. As I said, you know, these newspapers were social, uh, were functioning as a sort of social media in which, um, news reports would come in and breathlessly report that so-and-so has been able to not only materialize an arm, but also, you know, maybe the full form of the person. Um, so it, towards the end of this process, you could say that the process was one of making more, more and more material, the things of the spirit. And I I actually have joked with uh, one of my magician associates who I'm working on a project with now that during the same time, basically, if you follow the spiritualists and the professional magicians, what you find is that the spiritualists are trying to make visible bigger and bigger things, more and more of the human body, for example. While magicians were trying to make, to dematerialize bigger and bigger things, ending up with Houdini on the, uh, on the platform of the New York Hippodrome making an elephant disappear, um, you know, starting out with uh, making a rabbit disappear down, down your sleeve and winding up with an elephant. So there, there was this question about the relationship between the spiritual and the material. But at the same time, this obviously was a temptation to produce phenomena um, that were not real, that could be reproduced or were being reproduced by um, tricks. So that was that was a part of um, the spiritualist history as well, more and more uh, temptations and obvious temptations to expose the mechanical means of producing materialized bodies and ectoplasm and so on. Mm. And the exposures that came out of that uh, definitely affected the reputation of the movement and um, set people off. Mm. And, And I think that's, in some sense, you can see that that was very clearly at work in the, um, around by, by about 1880, 1885, um, spiritualism wasn't the force that it was. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, in 1888, uh, Death Blow to Spiritualism is published in which the author uh, recounts Maggie Fox's recantation of her life as a medium, right? How, yes. what, what kind of influence did that particular publication with Maggie Fox being who she was, what influence did that have on spiritualism? Well, it was a, it was a big shock. It was a big shock to spiritualists. But I have to say that there were ways to protect yourself from her, if you were a spiritualist, from her recantation. Um, they included the fact that she'd become an alcoholic by that time. Mm -hmm. um, they were undependable. And there was another way to protect yourself that was taken by the editor of the Religio Philosophical Journal, whose name was John Bundy. Um, he, after her recantation, he said it doesn't matter that she recanted uh, and talked about her tricks because we're standing at, with a collection of experiences by millions of people over decades that we have confidence in. So in effect, you could write her off as he did. Uh, there was a lot of talk around that time by spiritualists that she'd been suborned, that her testimony had been suborned because um, she decided to convert to Catholicism mm -hmm. and uh, that her new friends had convinced her that this was part of her penance, essentially. So there were ways to deal with it. If you're a believer, you can, you know, think of ways to, to reconcile it with what you believe mm -hmm. without giving up your belief, but it definitely was a big hit, no question. Yeah. And of course, her sister, Leah, at this point, uh, no longer, I mean, she hadn't been Leah Fox for a long time. She'd been Leah Fish, and then at this point, she's Leah Underhill. She publishes The Missing Link in Spiritualism and directly addresses uh, Maggie's recantation. And so you even have one of the other Fox sisters who is pushing back against it and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and then not much later, Maggie recants her recantation, right? And she says, well, no, that was a lie. How does that feed into this kind of public discussion? <laughs> well, it, make, it makes it a big mess, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, from the very beginning, it seemed to many people that Leah, the older sister, had pushed the younger sisters into a career uh, and had uh, ginned up a sort of act and was, you know, the controlling spirit here behind everybody else. So... Um, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to look at this. I don't, I don't know, but uh, it made it a big mess in the spiritualist community for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, how when we come kind of towards the end of the 19th century, uh, you mentioned there was a decline in spiritualism by the 1880s. How strong was spiritualism uh, by the time we're stepping into the 20th century? I don't think it was. Um, it was a big factor in American thought by 1900. There were plenty of spiritualists still, but, but when I say plenty, I don't mean that they dominated intellectual life or were the attraction or 
that they that they had been or the challenge that they had been before, but um, it wasn't all downhill after that. There was a big revival of spiritualism in the post World War One period, and uh, and in some sense, it's uh, still a part of. Um, you know, what lay at the heart of spiritualism is still in continuity with what we see around us all the time uh, in our own culture. Um, belief in psychic powers, uh, belief in channeled uh, texts that give some higher revelation. Um, a lot of that interest is now labeled New Age um, which is a term that was, as far as I know, was invented in its original sense, or in the sense that we know it now, um, in the spiritualist community. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of that's still with us today. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned uh, that some of your recent work uh, really engages the early days of radio and when there were you know, vaudeville stage mentalists and mind readers and hypnotists who were on the airwaves. Um, how do you relate those to, I mean, earlier you were comparing magicians to spiritualists. How do these kind of radio performers and, and mind readers and mentalists relate to spiritualist practice? Well, mind readers, performing mind readers, who call themselves mentalists most often, went on the radio big time as soon as it became commercially available, meaning just after World War I. And they saw themselves as part of the professional magic world, but they could not present themselves as doing a trick. Basically, nobody wants to see a fake psychic. Nobody wants to see a fake medium, a mentalist, or a fake medium for that matter. So unlike a magician who could define performance space in a way that the audience and he accepted, culturally accepted, and was an implicit part of the act as an act, it may look wonderful and you may not be able to figure it out, audience, but we all know that this is a trick. A mentalist can't do that. They have to become that persona they have to, their, their act is based on developing a relationship and projecting it with the audience itself. They have to get into the audience's mind. And it seemed to me that that's pretty well known, but it struck me that what they were doing was particularly attuned to the radio because in the radio you know unlike tv or visual medium unlike in those mediums you're not provided any visual element what happens is somebody on the other end of the line is speaking to you and they're telling a narrative and you're participating in order for this to work, you provide the images. 
you're already a partner in creating the story. And, you, and basically that is the quid pro quo of doing radio work, or at least, you know, if you're not doing advertising. You assume that you're getting into people's heads and that they're participating with you and they're helping to create the story as they're listening, which is quite different from TV. In TV, you're just sitting there letting it wash over you. And not only is the image being fed to you, but the narrative is quite controlled. So you're more, much more of a passive participant. But radio itself is a sort of mentalist paradise, I thought. It's much more uh, appropriate and in tune with what mentalists were doing, which was projecting a persona of relating to one person's mind directly, reading it, in communication with it. Um, so I thought I would write a book about that special relationship between performing mentalists who are on vaudeville and off vaudeville um, and the kinds of things they were doing and the way they flocked onto the radio between the wars, between World War I and World War II. One of the observations that a number of historians who've written about spiritualism have, have made is the, the interest in spiritualism in the wake of the Civil War in the United States um, with a, a, the scale of, of loss and, and grief and uh, the scale of national mourning, uh, and then also looked at uh, the aftermath of World War I as a driving factor for renewed interest in spiritualism. Uh, do you see that same kind of connection? I think there was renewed interest because simply there was a lot of people dying and particularly dying early. So there was a sharp sense of injustice there and how could it be reconciled with divine justice. Mm. But um, I'm not so much one who connects it with a way to deal with national grief, individual or countrywide grief. I think it was there, and you can see it intertwined with uh, with the movement. But I don't. I think you would be in error if you just assigned it all to either individual or national tragedy. There was a much wider movement than that. Mm-hmm. As I, you know, as I tried to say, it wasn't just that people were looking for to make contact, to make sure that their dead husband or son were still in a happy place after life, but it, it was an entire revisioning of the relationship between heaven and earth and the possibilities of human evolution and progression. And what people needed to do here on this earth in order to turn this earth more into a heaven. That's a big, that's a big thing. Mm. So, yeah, there was some relationship between the wars and grief, but it was a much bigger project than that. Mm. 
Mm. Um, maybe to wrap up our conversation, if you're thinking about uh, what you would hope that we would communicate to our listeners about spiritualism, and you know, our goal is to go back to the middle of the 19th century and uh, to let the dead speak as best we can. And, and Brody's phrase, the historian's work is the spiritualist's work. You know, we're trying to let the dead speak. Um, what is it that you would hope that listeners to our documentary that's going to be a narrative history of spiritualism, what do you hope they will hear? I hope they will hear... that the history of our country during that time was influenced deeply by a set of ideas that were expressed very well by spiritualism. And what they need to know, this is my special message to the listeners, Yes. what they need to know is that that profound influence that they exerted on the national life was deliberately written out of histories of reform movements like the women's movement, the labor movement, the politics, history of the politics of the period, the intellectual history, the history of, of the novel and poetry, and on and on, that those things were modified so that you hardly see any reference to it anymore. And I have found that, particularly in the movement, the labor movement, for example, and the women's movement, um, that the writing out happened deliberately. The labor movement, it's easy to see. Marx and the International kicked out a bunch of spiritualist um, in 1875, and everybody that was had previously gotten along splendidly uh, under that umbrella suddenly had to be a materialist, and therefore a spiritualist, was spiritualist were on the out. And that hardly has been, that story has hardly been told. Mm. Very recently it started to. Same thing happened with the women's movement. Um, and the five-volume history of the women's suffrage movement uh, that was written by Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and so on, that also was worked on. And it was there was some strategy to this. Um, basically, they didn't want to ally themselves with a lot of people ideas that mainstream America thought were crazy and that were out of bounds, they had specific political aims, aims that included legislation that had to be passed and so on. So they were claiming the largest possible platform and the broadest view that they could. But if uh, I think a, a few historians have of late been trying to resurrect the influence of, uh, of spiritualism during this time. And if you want a good view, you know, in Ann Brown's words, yes, you need to resurrect these people and what was going on with them and how they influenced society in order to really understand 
nuts and bolts of 19th century America. Hey folks, it's Aaron here. I hope today's interview helped you deepen your understanding of everything involved in the world of spiritualism. But we're not done yet. We have more interviews to share with you, so stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear a preview of next week's interview. Next time on Unobscured. Edmonds was a judge in the New York State Supreme Court, and he was in charge for many years of the condition of prisoners in New York prisons, which was miserable, utterly miserable. So he had a vocational interest in uh, what happens to bad people in the afterlife. So if everybody's going to heaven, then you're going to end up with criminals. And what do you do with your criminals in the afterlife, right? What happens to them? So he led a many-year seance circle in which they routinely talked to dead criminals. And he brought back some some reports uh, from these folks, mostly men, but not always. Crime in Edmund's heaven is is very, very gendered. So men are murderers and brutes and rapists and drunkards, and women are sexually permissive and murder children. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.